take a chance. You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Echo. Expense account. Item one cup of Go Juice Double Double, $2.14. Internet connection, $140 a month. Time with Lothar Tuppen and Jeff Billard on Sonic Echo, where we showcase amazing old-time radio drama. <laughs> Priceless. And entirely not for sale. Yours truly, Jackie Looney. Hello, folks. Welcome to Sonic Echo. I'm Jack Ward, butchering a very familiar refrain from tonight's show, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And as always, I'm here with the amigos, Jeffrey Billard. Hello. Hello, Jack. I'm working on my own actions-packed expense account. (laughs) That's great. That's great. And Lothar Tuppen. How's it going, brother? Doing good. I'm very glad that I actually get the loony reference since I'm married to a Canadian, but um, my my expense account is completely bust. (laughs) When I first heard that, I thought, this is strange. It's not your everyday detective show this is a guy who was an insurance agent and he's not just a regular insurance detective guy he is a freelance guy so he goes around looking for jobs of insurance fraud to take care of a very interesting show i had listened to a couple of episodes before this but never a whole serial which i know you're going to get into the whole format and now i'm absolutely hooked so i'm, I'm really glad that you suggested this one because uh, now i got a new uh, new show to listen to i'd never listened to this show before that the, the title always kind of turned me off, and uh, I was like, I don't know what this show's about. I just never, I never tuned into it, so uh, I was glad that you did bring this up, Jack, because uh, like, like Lothar just said, it gives me something to, uh, to listen to. There's a, there's a lot of episodes. So here's something to tempt you guys. There are 10 scripts in the generic radio script website of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and five of them are one series called The Case of the Medium Well Done. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that might be something we might want to tackle on sometime for yes. Sonic Summerstock. Oh, right. Wouldn't yeah. that be great? Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, it's a great show. So it was done in, like we said, in, in the five-part area, but it also was done in the 30-minute. And I just want to talk a little bit about the setup. Like the five-part series means it's a 70-minute show, around 70 minutes or so. Right. And this particular mm-hmm. show we're going to listen to shortly is called The McCormick Matter, which was the first one. And I loved, we can talk more about the acting and all the other elements, but I love Bob Bailey in this role. But he's not the first guy. I mean, there's been eight people who played Johnny Dollar through the years. Right. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts in 49, right? Dick Powell auditioned uh, originally in 48. Mm-hmm. Um, but he left the role and initially wasn't called that. It was called, wasn't called yours truly Johnny Dollar, it was called yours truly Lloyd London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, of course, they changed it <laughs> for legal reasons. They thought, hmm, there is actually an insurance company called Lloyd's of London, which might give us a trouble. So that's when they changed the. Uh, the and name you know, it's that. really hard to get behind a hard boiled American detective named Lloyd. That's true. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, Johnny. No, listen to me, Lloyd. Listen to me. This is Johnny. Just sounds so much better. Sort of yeah. like the when Harry met Sally bit. It's like, oh, who'd you have great sex with, Sheldon? No, no, you didn't have great sex with. Sheldon. <laughs> if you want your taxes done, Sheldon's your guy. But you know that Sheldon's not not good for great sex. So no, Lloyd. Lloyd does not make a great detective's name for that same reason exactly. <laughs> now the character of Johnny Dollar, he was, uh, and we'll find out. He's not necessarily a, a stickler for strict interpretation of the law he's willing to set something slide for his own sense of justice the series ends in 1954 it ends a couple years after they move the show from la and hollywood out to new york city that's that's the end of bob bailey he doesn't want to make the move with the show so that's when he leaves it and some other people use it and by then it's already lost its five episode serial take and it's gone back to the 30-minute, which is where it began. It started as a 30-minute, once-per-week program, like you said, beginning in the late mm. 40s, early 50s, and then moved to the five-per-week. What's really fascinating, too, is that it did not have its own advertiser. It was sustained. It was a sustained one by CBS Radio itself. It's unsponsored. There's only been a couple, I think only two of the serials wow. take time out for a sponsored message out of all the it, years. It, doesn't it run till 62 in one of its iterations? Oh, yes. It did It did come back. Yeah. Right. It, you're right. It did come back. I guess that the, the 52 was where the five... Doesn't it really... Isn't it really one of the last radio shows of the golden era? Yeah. What's really, it's really kind of sad, actually, is that CBS consider this the end of the golden age of radio drama on September 30th, 1962, when it was finished, which was immediately followed by the final broadcast of Suspense as well. Yeah. Wow. So both died on the same night. Oh, so September wow. 30th should be a, a dark day in infamy, as far as I'm right. concerned. That was just when it went into sleep, and it just needed to rejuvenate before it burst forth again that's right that's right that's right in it the just... mutual audio network that's right <laughs> exactly <laughs> well radio at that time in the early 60s right because it's going more towards music and things like that right and they did try to make a in my reading uh they did try to make a tv show or two out of johnny dollar but it never took that's right in fact bob bailey yeah. tried a pilot in 1958, The Adventures of Johnny Dollar, which I looked for, but I couldn't find. I was really interested to see what it would look like. Yeah. And then William Bryant starred in the 62 pilot entitled Johnny Dollar, which was written, produced, and directed by Blake Edwards. Really? Yes, I, re- I read that. Yeah. Yes. I read that. Who is famous for doing a lot of detective stuff, and of course, later on, The Pink Panther Pink and some Panther. great comedies as well. One of what my a favorites. great writer Blake Edwards was. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. So unless you have anything else, the rest of this we can do on the other side. Yeah, yeah sounds good to me. Without further ado, let's listen to the release of October 3rd, 1955, The McCormick Matter, the first of the five-part series of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, right here on the Sonic Echo. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is Father Taggart. I'm calling you from Ossining. I'm one of the chaplains here at Sing Sing. Oh, yes, sir. What can I do for you, Father? Well, nothing for me, Mr. Dollar, but possibly for someone else. Michael Cairn, one of our inmates, asked me to contact you. Michael Cairn? Mm-hmm. You remember him? He wasn't sure you would. Old-time grifter and con man who got tied up with an insurance fraud a few years ago, blonde fella? Yes. Well, Michael wants to see you, Mr. Dollar. Could you possibly find the time to come up here? Oh, I don't know, Father. Is this something important? It is to Michael. Oh, well, uh, look, I'll be in New York sometime next month. Maybe I'll get a chance to stop off. Well, couldn't you possibly make it sooner? What's the rush? He's going to be there quite a while, isn't he? 
Not very long, I'm afraid. Michael is dying. All right, Father, you can expect me. Welcome to Johnny Dollar. Beginning tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Ed Barth, Controller's Office. This is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Though you didn't authorize the investigation, Ed, I'm sure that once the facts are out, you will honor the following. Expense account, item one, $7.95. Train fare and incidentals, Hartford to Arsening, New York. I was admitted inside the prison and greeted by Father Taggart. He's a tall, mild-looking man, a Jesuit, I believe. He had a pass already for me, and he led me straight to the prison infirmary. Just in here. Michael will certainly appreciate your coming, Mr. Dollar. I hope it satisfies whatever's on his mind. I can't imagine what it would be. You know, it was my investigation and testimony that put him in here, Father. He told me all about that, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with why he wants to see you. See, his lungs started to go about two years ago, and there's just been no way to arrest the condition. Does he know how close he is? Oh, yes. He's not afraid to die. Here we are, Mr. Dollar. Oh. What? Hardly the same man I remember, Father. He's had it bad lately. Lost a great deal of weight. Yeah. Asleep? Yes. Michael. Michael. Oh. Hey, Father. I brought someone to see you. What do you say? Hiya, Mike. Oh, <laughs> thanks for coming. Thanks, Johnny. Thank Father Taggart here. Uh, he's an all right guy, Johnny. He's just like you. I always said you were the best insurance cop. <coughs> here, here, what's all this? I'm kicking out, Johnny. Didn't you tell him, Father? He told me, Mike. <laughs> Guess I didn't live right. I'll be back in a little while. Thanks, Father. You take it easy, Mike. Mm. <laughs> A lousy place to die, prison. But I ain't got my choice, thanks to you. Well, it's just that you picked to do a couple of things that the law and some insurance companies didn't agree with, Mike. Uh, I don't hold none of that against you. A guy does what he does. I don't know how to tell you this. <coughs> Maybe I better get the doctor. You shouldn't be talking so much. No, no, wait. Johnny, look, you know I'm no crybaby. When the doctor gave me the news, I got to thinking... I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. Uh, it's just that I had a wife once, a long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah. Then I just kind of drifted out of her picture one day. <coughs> ain't got a cough drop, baby. <laughs> yeah, I guess it wouldn't cure what I got. Anyhow, I, I got to do something for her before I... Well, Johnny, I lay here and I get myself an idea. Yeah, Mike? Johnny, if there was some real easy money lying around, would you pick it up for me? Depends on how clean it is, Mike, and where it's lying. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It, it, well, it's clean, all right. You can find that out for yourself. All right. Now, now listen. Till they moved me down here in the infirmary, I roomed upstairs with Jojo Panny. You know him? No, don't believe I do. And 
cartridge from the Haystates. Got his sabbatical three weeks ago. Paroled. Uh-huh. Well, I've been in the camp with a lot of guys, but Jojo Penny <laughs> takes the cake. He's got a little old five-year trick to put in. <laughs> this Jojo, he does it like a vacation. You know, a real picnic. <laughs> Every time he gets a chance out in the yard, he's taking sun. So he don't get the color, see? Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> when they push him in with me, I notice this. And I get to going over in my head. Yeah. Why does a guy whistle in a cell block, Johnny? Why, why is he treating it like a rest home? Short term. He's got something outside waiting. <sighs> That's it, baby. He's got something waiting for him outside. Something that he knows will keep safe. Money. Thought you said this was legitimate, Mike. It is, it is. Now, wait. I didn't ask Jojo anything about this. No, I figured it out myself. Then a couple of times I hear him yelling in his sleep. McCormick, he yells. McCormick. Eh? Makes sense now, Johnny? Not yet. Ah, the big heist, Johnny, the big heist. A few years ago, a rich guy named McCormick out on Long Island or someplace like that gets turned over for $100,000 worth of jewelry. You remember? Vaguely. Eh, well, I'm thinking that Jojo Panny was in on it somewhere. Mm. Else why would he be singing and whistling and chilling himself around this fly trap for five years? Else why would he be talking about that when he's sleeping? McCormick. McCormick. Yeah. Maybe you've got something, Mike. Ah, I know I got something, Johnny. And you got something, too. It... <laughs> oh, no, Mike. Take it easy. Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't you see? The insurance company must have a reward out. They always do. A reward. Yeah, but Mike, look. I tell you, Joe Joey is the Ginzo that done the job. Or he knows who did it. So, you look into it. Work on it. Maybe turn up the stuff and get the reward. Good clean coin. Yeah. Yeah. Send half of it to my old lady, will you? You keep the rest yourself. What'd you say? Huh? Will you... Mike Kern died three hours later. The last living thing he did was wink at me. Expense account item two, $14.20. Train fare and incidentals, Ossining to New York. I arrived at 2.15, dropped my bag off at the New Western, and went over to the Metropolitan Police Station to find out what I could about the McCormick matter. It was all pretty much as old Mike had told me. A Julian McCormick living on Long Island had suffered a $100,000 jewelry burglary in 1951. Twelve suspects had been arrested and released. The case was marked open and unsolved. Allied Casualty had been the insurance company involved. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Wonder if you could give me a little information about a claim your company handled in 1951. A man named Julian McCormick out on Long Island. Gee, well, long time ago. Uh, what about the McCormick claim? I might have some information on it. I don't know yet. It's a long chance. I'm at police headquarters, and I notice you investigated for the insurance company. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, sure, but it's kind of late today. Tomorrow, okay? Well, you can tell me this right now. Is there any reward being offered? Gee whiz, kind of folds my sails. 
How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be paid for it. Well, I said it was just a long shot. How about the reward? Well, that's pretty standard with us on cases like this. Yeah, I think it's 7500 something like that. I'm not sure. Where are you staying? New Weston. Well, I'll look it up, get the exact figure, and call you there. How'll that be? Fine, thanks. That'll be fine. Before I left the police station, I turned out a mug on Jojo Panny. He was a big, broad-shouldered lad with plenty of beef and a list of petty convictions, four of them in New York State. The last one was for carrying concealed weapons. His parole status was good, though, and the parole officer furnished me with his home address. The Allen Hotel, rates day, week, or month, 115th Street. It's open, it's open. Come on in. Hiya. Looking for Joe Penn. Yes, sir. That's me. My name's Johnny Dollar. Yeah? I, uh... I just came down from Ossining. I saw a friend of yours up there, Joe. Who was that? Mike Cairn. How's Mike? Not so good. He died today. Uh, it's too bad. He was a nice old coot. Kind of liked him. Said if I ever saw you to say hello. Uh-huh. He didn't give you my address. No, I got it from the parole office. You some kind of cop? No, I work for an insurance company. Oh. Buy you a drink? Sure. Why not? Expense account item three, four dollars even for drinks. I wanted to look at Joe Joe Panny and talk to him and figure out how I was going to go about getting information from him. And the more I saw and the more he talked, the more I wondered if whatever he might have said about the McCormick case in his sleep happened to some other McCormick. After all, a man with a long list of petty thieveries is hardly ever involved in a slick, big-time safe-cracking job. That takes another kind of talent, and one I was sure that JoJo didn't have. So i just been taking it easy and looking around. I figure I can get a job pushing a truck or maybe a cab if I'm lucky. Got to get something to do. Parole officers kind of hard-nosed about things like that. Yeah. Drink up. Want one more? Oh, no, no thanks. Freeze my limit. Like to keep in shape. Sure. Say, uh, you got anything to do? Nothing special. Why? Thought I might go out to Long Island later on tonight to say hello to an old friend of mine. If you haven't got anything to do, come on along. <laughs> You're okay, bub. Sure, why not? Uh, this friend of yours, he's an ex-con too? No, he never did any time. Just a friend. Want to say hello is all. Oh. Rich fella. His name's Julian McCormick. You're, uh, very big with the hellos around here today, aren't you? Anything wrong, Joe? You probably are. Why do you say that? Nothing. Ever know anyone named McCormick? I knew a guy named Arnie McCormick once back in Salt Lake City. We were pals for a while. Oh. Yeah. Arnie was killed in the war. He'd got himself drafted in the infantry. Maybe he's related to my friend Julian McCormick out on Long Island. He wasn't related to anybody, not that bird. I'm leaving. I want to get up early tomorrow. Why not come with me? <laughs> Thanks for the drinks. He drifted off down the street and left me standing there. And one thing I was sure of, 
He had the name McCormick on his mind. Whether it was the right McCormick or the right case, I didn't know. Anyhow, he was my one big lead. So I was back at his hotel early the next morning and talking to the desk clerk. Annie, did you say room 210? Yeah, that's right. Vamoose. What? He left bag and baggage last night. Well, where did he go? What's his forwarding address? He didn't say. Just left. Johnny Dollar. This is Frank Porter, Allied Casualty. Yes, Mr. Porter. Well, call me Frank, Johnny. Uh, you phoned yesterday about the McCormick matter. I got all the stuff about the case on my desk here. Uh, we're still offering $7,500 reward. Thanks for confirming it, Frank. Sure. Uh, you got a tip or something? An old con named Mike Cairn gave me a tip about a guy named Jojo Panny. I'm working on it. Well, need any help? No, not yet. I might. Jojo pulled out of his hotel last night, bag and baggage. Huh. What are you going to do? I'm on my way to Long Island. Huh? I want to talk to McCormick himself. Oh. Uh, Johnny. Yeah? Let me give you a tip for your own good. Don't bother Julian McCormick unless you've really got something. Could be dangerous. I think I've got something. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Item four, $10 deposit on the car I rented to drive out to Julian McCormick's home on Long Island. And judging by the looks of the place, a safe full of $100,000 worth of jewelry would feel right at home. It was a mansion, and the rugs on the floor were an inch thick. I'm sorry I've kept you waiting. Mrs. McCormick and I were packing for a little trip to Europe. Sit down, please. Thanks. Going to be gone long? Oh, we usually spend several months a year over there. We're a bit late this year. Our reservations are for next week. I envy you, Mr. McCormick. Dollar the name? That's right. Forgive me, but I don't seem to recall having heard of you before. That's okay. We never met. I'm an insurance investigator. Oh, really? Am I being investigated or something? No, no, nothing like that. It's just that I might have a lead on that jewelry that was taken from your home a few years ago. Well, that's wonderful. You must tell me about it. Can I make you a drink? No, thanks. You're from the insurance company, Allied Casualty? No, no, I'm not. I'm an independent investigator. Well, why should anyone feel it necessary to call in a... Oh, oh, I see. There's a reward, of course. That's right. Yes, of course. But now, tell me, how can I help you? Well, I'm just checking a few things, Mr. McCormick. I haven't even gone over it with a man who handled the case for Allied... Possibly I have run into something that'll help. I don't know. I'd like you to tell me what happened. My safe was opened and my jewelry taken. I mean, how it happened. Well, it was right in this very room. That's the wall safe there. Uh Uh-huh. Mrs. McCormick and I had just returned from our honeymoon. Five years ago, it was. Yeah? All I know is that when I stepped into the library here that morning, the safe was open and everything was gone. Whoever did it was extremely clever and quiet, I must say. Was the safe cracked? No, no, no. It was just opened. Someone figured the combination or something like that. Well, who knew the combination at the time? Only myself, Mr. Dolan. You're sure of that? Why, of course. I see. I reported it to the police right away here on Long Island. Then some men from New York City were here, too. And your insurance company? I reported it to my insurance company immediately. They had a man on the scene as soon as the police. A 
Mr. Porter. Frank Porter? Yes. Do you know him? I've talked to him on the phone. I haven't met him. A very nice chap. He worked very hard trying to recover it. I'm sure he did. Did they have an adjuster? Yes. Uh, How much did you collect, if you don't mind? Not much. What do you mean? Well, it was unfortunate. By keeping that much jewelry in a small house safe, it seems I violated the clause in the contract. It should have been kept in a safety deposit box or some such. Consequently, the matter went into litigation. I'm afraid the court found me at fault. I collected only a part of the insured value, $20,000. So, you can see, I'd certainly welcome a recovery. Sure. The jewelry was in the family a good many years. I had given it to my wife, and I... Well, a man hates to lose things he loves. Yes, I understand. Was Mrs. McCormick here the morning it happened? Oh, yeah? I'd like to talk to her. She's terribly busy, but if you think it's sufficiently important, I'll call her. No, never mind. I'm curious, Mr. Dollar. This case has been closed a long time. At least, no one's contacted me or asked me for any information about it for at least four years. What opened it? A man named Mike Cairn. Huh? Who's he? An old convict up at Ossining who shared a cell for a while with a man named Joe Panny. Uh-huh. Cairn died yesterday. But before he died, he told me he thought Panny had something to do with it. He'd heard him mention your name. Well, it seems to me you should talk with this Joe Panny. I did. And I will some more. As soon as I locate him again. Right now he's missing. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thanks for the time, Mr. McCormick. You let me know if you learn anything? Sure. Do you... Honestly, think you can recover that jewelry? With any luck at all? That would be wonderful, wonderful. You think so? Why, yes, of course. Mrs. McCormick might be glad to know about it, too. Huh? You said it was her jewelry. I don't know why I said that to him. Just a sudden impulse. But he wasn't smiling when he walked me to the door, shook my hand, and patted me on the shoulder. I had a funny feeling that Mr. Julian McCormick was scared like a rabbit of me. I drove back to the city, had lunch at Walgreens, and dropped into Allied Casualties, New York office, to pick up the folder on reward information. I met Frank Porter and liked him right away, a big red-headed man in a tweed suit. Gee, where's Johnny? It makes me feel older than ever doing this. How come? Well, I weighed 15 pounds less when this case started, June 1931. Ah, here we are. And... These are pictures of the stuff. Uh-huh. Now, that one they call Tierra del Fuego. Huh? Some necklace, hmm? I can see why. Yeah, and uh, this one was called Imperial, in the royal family of Russia at one time. And uh, this is the other one. Placid. Mm, beautiful stuff. Oh, you can say that again. That all of it? Well, that's about the size of it, Johnny. $100,000 gone. Yeah. Help any? Sure. It's nice to know what I'm trying to find. Well, I hope you have better luck than I did. Yeah. Say, uh, who was the police officer on the case? Uh, Martin. Duels Martin. Out of Central? Yeah. We ran down every lead we could find, big and small. The file said you made 12 arrests. Yeah, something like that, but not one of them panned out. Had to let them all go. Martin requested pickups on every big-time jewelry man in the country. Now, I don't think one of them was overlooked. Well... No, Johnny, somebody just simply walked in that house, opened the safe as neat as you please, and walked right out with all of this. Very slick job. Had to be an experienced man. Well, might have been a first job for someone just starting in. He got lucky. Yeah, we thought of that, and we didn't think much of it after a while. Frank, you... Gee whiz, Johnny, you know, nobody could be that lucky. Case the house, know exactly where the safe was, know what was in it, get in, 
open it up and get out without anybody, servants, the McCormicks, or any of their friends even seeing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, that wasn't even the hardest part, you see. Not one scrap of this stuff has ever turned up anywhere. Yeah, well, Anywhere. Now, what did, what did whoever took it do with it? Did he break it down, sell it overseas? What? Not a trace of it. Imagine that. Imagine. You know what I think? I think the guy who swiped all this stuff still has it. I think he's sitting around waiting for it to cool off. Could be. Uh... But it's never going to cool off, Johnny. There isn't a city in this country or across the ocean that isn't on the lookout for these pieces. I suppose. Now, sooner or later, hot boy or lucky boy, well, whoever he is, will make a move. <laughs> Meantime, we just wait. Unless, of course, uh, you've got something for us to look into. Uh, not yet, Frank. Yeah, well, when you have, we'll be right with you all the way. Good, good. How about a drink? Uh, take a rain check. Okay. But remember, we got a whole floor full of lawyers upstairs. They can get up warrants, writs, seizure orders, anything you might want. Yeah. You just let me know when you get somewhere and we'll go to work. I'll do that, Frank. I left Frank Porter and went back over to the parole office to see what had developed with Joe Panny. After all, if he didn't report in, he'd be in violation of his parole, be in real trouble. But nothing had developed. He hadn't put in a change of address, nothing. So I went back to my hotel and had some dinner. Then I shaved, changed my clothes. Expense account, item five, dollar and a half, cab fare. I garaged my rented car, went back to Central Police Station and pulled out the mug on Joe Panny once more. Hoping to get a line on some friends or relatives of his where he might be staying. Up till then, things had been going pretty routine. Then a clerk from the parole offices stepped across the hall. Hi, Mr. Dollar. Hi. Thought it was you I saw in here. I wasn't sure. How's it going? Fine, fine. Talk to your friend Jojo Panny yet? Not today. Why? Well, you seemed awful anxious to talk to him, is all. I am. Why don't you go see him? You playing games? I've been trying to find out where he is all day. And I already told you. You what? Sure, I gave it to you half an hour ago when you phoned. When who phoned? Sure, about half an hour ago. Look, Joe Panny called in and told me his address. Yeah? I no sooner set down a phone and you call in and said, this is Johnny Dollar. Have you heard from Joe Panny? What? I said, yeah, and I told you his address, that's all. What address did you say? The Allen Hotel on 115th Street. Same place he was before. What's the matter, you forget? It took me ten minutes to get from the police station over to the Allen Hotel. Ten minutes of wondering who'd put in that call and use my name. I went up the stairs, two at a time, up to the second floor. And right at the top of the landing, I bumped into a dark-haired woman wearing a silver fur piece. Oh! Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you. It's all right. You hurt? No, not at all. Please, let me go past. I'm in a hurry. Yeah, I'd be in a hurry, too. What do you mean? The gun. What? You should carry it on the inside of your purse. Oh, I didn't... Suppose I take let it. No, let go of me. You... Fingernails, huh? Give it to me. All right, take it. She'd given it to me, all right, right on the side of the head. It didn't knock me out, but it did knock me off balance, so I tangled up with a hall table. And that gave her plenty of time to scurry down the stairs while I got out of the furniture and back on my feet. By the time I got down the stairs and out on the street, she was nowhere in sight. Hmm. No one yelled, I'm shot. No one did anything but what they were already doing. Where were you just now? You weren't here at the front desk. I was out back eating my dinner. Why? Oh, nothing. You happen to see that woman who just ran through here? No. Tall, dark-haired woman, about 30, wore a mixed stole. Me? Yeah. Oh, you're kidding in this joint. Oh, brother. You still looking for Joe Panny? He lives here again, doesn't he? Yeah. Have you seen him? Where is he? Out. 
I sat down with myself and waited. A half an hour later, when the clerk went back to finish his dinner, I stepped over to the desk and borrowed his passkey and went back up the stairs to room 210. I didn't need the passkey, and I didn't need to doubt the clerk. Joe Penny wasn't there. But all of his things were. The curtains were drawn and the windows closed. Every drawer had been pulled out of every dresser. The mattress on the bed was slipped from top to bottom, and the rug had been ripped and turned over. Expense account, item six, one dollar, one drink. For me. I left JoJo's room, went to the nearest bar, sat down, and had a drink. A scared victim, a missing con, a dark-haired woman wearing a mink and a gun, and other things. Right then and there, I decided that Mike Can's tip had been pretty good at that. Now, here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, a slight case of mayhem. When the right guy turns up in the wrong place. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. This is Dules Martin. Lieutenant Martin? Yeah, that's right. I got a message you called while I was out and left this number. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the McCormick case, Lieutenant. McCormick? $100,000 burglary out on Long Island back in 1951. Uh, I was the officer in charge. Who are you? Insurance investigator. I got a tip that an ex-convict named Joe Panny might have pulled it. I'm at Panny's hotel. Well, let me know how you make out. Say, listen, his room's been torn apart. Every inch of it's been searched. And when I came here tonight, I got socked by a woman with a gun. Give me that address. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Expense account, item seven, two dollars, two drinks. For myself and Lieutenant Dules Martin, NYPD. A big swarthy man who seemed to know what he was about. Martin looked over the damage done by the unknown ransacker of Joe Panny's room, questioned the clerk who was unable to furnish any helpful information, then, because Joe Panny was officially a parole violator, ordered a general pickup. They should be able to get our hands on him pretty soon, Dollar. I hope it's that easy, Lieutenant. Any reason why it shouldn't be fairly routine? No, just a feeling, I guess. I don't know. This whole matter's been flimsy. The tip was weak, but it seems to be paying off. Nothing fits, though. I don't quite get all this, Dollar. How'd you come in on this? Old Mike Cairn died up at Sing Sing two days ago. Before he went, he told me he believed Joe Panny might have pulled a McCormick burglary. It didn't seem likely then, Panny being a small-time auto thief and whatnot. But now it does, in view of what's been happening lately. Somebody sure wants something Panny might have, judging from that room. I never saw one taken apart better, an expert search job. Yeah. Hey, Lieutenant, when you pick Joe Panny up, I'd like to be in on it. He's my only lead in this case, and I want to talk to him again. That's not asking too much. Now, Dollar... About this woman you saw. Pretty, about 30, dark hair, good dresser, wore a silver mink stole. The gun she socked me with was a little one, a 25 or maybe 32 automatic. Mm-hmm. You think she might have done the searching in Joe's room? What do you think? She was flustered and upset when I bumped into her, anxious to get away from the place. And, of course, the gun in her hand. Yeah. She sound familiar to you in this neighborhood? No, no. Could be anybody. Yeah. Well, that's about it, Lieutenant. Yeah. No, I got it. Oh, thanks. I suppose you talked to McCormick, got the full story of the burglary from him? Almost first thing, yeah. Well, I remember him when it first happened. Nice enough, but strange, I thought. This business about somebody phoning the parole office ahead of you to get Joe Panny's address that stops me, though. That's hard to figure. You sure you're telling me everything? Sure, I'm sure. That part sounds crazy. Not if somebody knew I was looking for him, wanted to get him first. But who? How should I know? Well, we'll see what we will see. Uh, can I drop you anywhere? No, thanks. I'll walk. You let me know when you pick him up. Sure. Two days passed, and I didn't hear from Lieutenant Martin. I finally phoned in, and a supplementary had turned up no leads. Martin had men watching Joe's hotel. His former friends and acquaintances were being checked. Meanwhile, I decided to try and find out who the dark woman in the first stole had been. It seemed pretty obvious that she had just come from Joe's room, that she knew him or was connected with him in some way. So once more, I combed over Joe Panny's file at headquarters, this time looking for a woman's name. The only one mentioned was an ex-wife who had divorced him six years before. Her name was Iris Carter. At the Bureau of Vital Statistics, the marriage certificate and record of divorce proceedings gave me a composite picture of an unhappy and turbulent three-year marriage. It also gave me a general description of Iris Carter that could very well fit the woman I'd seen briefly in the hallway outside Joe Panny's hotel room. There was a six-year-old address to start on. Eunice? Is that you, Eunice? I said, is that you, Eunice? No, ma'am, I'm not Eunice. Oh, no, you sure ain't. You seen her? I don't know. I really don't know her. Oh. Well, what do you want? I'd like to talk to the manager. I want some information. What's your name? Johnny Dollar. 
What kind of information are you looking for? Are you the manager? Yes, sir, I am. Well, I'm trying to locate a woman named Iris Carter. She might have used the name Iris Panny. She was married once to a man named Joe Panny. Lived here about six years ago. Were you here then? I was. Did you know her? I did. Did you know him? Yeah. He went to jail. Does she live here now? She don't. Do you have any idea where I can find her? I don't. Well, uh, do you happen to know if she ever Why worked do you want or... her? Just to talk to her. When did she move out? Oh, long time ago. Five years, maybe. Uh-huh. What's your business? Insurance. Oh. <laughs> well, what's up? Oh, nobody around here buys insurance. <laughs> well, we don't have to go into that. If you can think of any place I might get a line on her, I'd appreciate it. It seems to me she worked at a bookstore down the street. Down what street? Out there. Block or two down that way. I think she worked there. I don't know. You can try. Thank you. I will. My, you played. You tip your hat. So tell me, do you remember what she looked like? Sort of. Yeah. Well? Oh, about as tall as I am. Nice. Pretty girl. Blonde or brunette? Dark hair. Almost black. Know any of her friends when she lived here? Mm, no. No, I couldn't tell you that. Why? Oh, I might look up one of them and ask her about her. That's all. You ask at that bookstore. I think she worked there. The bookstore Iris Carter Panny had worked in was as dismal as the neighborhood. The proprietor, a Mrs. Olds, yielded a little more helpful information than Iris Carter's former landlady. Yes, Iris had worked there for about six months. She'd quit almost five years before. No, she didn't know where to find her. Expense account, item eight, one dollar and two cents lunch. I had it in a neighborhood diner called the Showboat, a place where Mrs. Olds said Iris Carter had frequently eaten. The restaurant manager remembered Iris vaguely. She also remembered Iris's boyfriend. I asked for a description. She did better than that. She gave me his name, occupation, and address. An old rehearsal hall two blocks away. The five-man combo working there was really putting it out. Yeah... And the minute I saw him, I knew the boy wearing the trumpet was the one I was looking for. Just good-looking and smooth enough to go with a girl Iris Carter sounded like. Smooth trumpet, too. Okay, guys. Take five. I'm looking for Jack Lang. You found him. I'm Johnny Dollar. Could we talk a minute? That's about all I got, Mr. Dollar. Want to smoke? No, thanks. Oh, man. Gets real tired out about this time of day. Yeah, imagine it does. The way you put it out. Well, everybody do his own racket. <laughs> What's yours? Insurance investigating. Okay. Now what? Well, I've been asking around the neighborhood, and they tell me you once knew a girl named Iris Carter or Iris Panny. Iris Carter. Go on. I'd like to find her and talk to her, and I thought you might be able to help me. Go on. 
I want to talk to her ex-husband most of all. I thought somehow she might know where to find him these days. He's in the can. He was released three weeks ago. No. Any ideas? No. I thought finding her might be a shortcut to him. I wouldn't think so. They were all washed up when I knew her. When was that? Five years ago. She hadn't seen him for over a year then. Uh-huh. She didn't have much use for him. I don't blame her. How long did you know her? No. We went together for a while while she worked at some crummy bookstore. Then she moved away, and I didn't see her after that. I think she said something about going back to Ohio. You think? I don't remember offhand. Well, let me put it this way. As far as I know, she's in no trouble. The one we want is her ex-husband. You'd be helping a lot if you could tell me where to find her. I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I sure wish I did. I'd like to find her myself. Why? Well, when she went with me, I... Well, wasn't any good. I think she just walked out because she was tired of losers. Sick up to here, you know what I mean? Can't blame her. He gave her a pretty bad time. I didn't do much better. But now I got something. It's this little five-piece outfit. Not much, but something. I'd like to show it to her and say, Iris, this is mine. You kind of had it bad, huh? Bad as a guy like me can get it. I know I'll probably never see her again as long as I live, but... Boy, if another, another one like her ever shows up... I'm going to be ready, Dad. Ever see you? No. She must have been something. Here. Take a look. Nice, huh? Yeah. I take it back. What back? About seeing her. I've seen her. When? Where? Two nights ago in the hallway outside Joe Panny's room. You, you sure? I'm sure. She hit me with a gun before she left. The picture he had flipped out of his wallet was old and well-thumbed. It showed a sultry kind of face that could have been 20 or 30 or 40. A wide, frank, smiling, happy mouth. Not the kind of girl I would imagine could ever be married to a Joe Penny. But there was no doubt about it. She had been married to him, and I had seen her. On my way back to the hotel, I dropped in to check with Lieutenant Martin. Hi. Hi. Doing any good? Any lead on Joe Panny? Nothing so far. This may take longer than I thought at first. Well, I've been out looking for his ex-wife. I didn't find her, but I found a few people who knew her. She was the one at his hotel the other night. Name's Iris Carter. You sure? Positive. I saw her picture. We better try to pick her up, too. I'll put it out right away. Fine. Well, I'll keep in touch. Oh, wait a minute. Don't go. Huh? We had some action here today. Sit down. Thanks. Julian McCormick called up, reported you. He said you came out there bothering him a couple days ago. He said he doesn't want to be bothered. Well, I only talked to him to get his story on the burglary. And I told him as long as you didn't break the law, there was nothing we could do to stop you from investigating. But he didn't like it. He seemed perfectly willing to cooperate with me when I talked to him before. Yeah, well, sometime these rich... Excuse me. Martin here. That's right. Well, how long ago? Okay. Well, they found your boy, Joe Panny. What? Yeah. He's on his way to the morgue. Harbor Patrol picked up his body a couple of hours ago, loaded down with slugs. Some case. And that ain't all, Johnny. Huh? His feet were burnt.
Johnny Dollar. Frank Porter at Allied Casualty. How's it going, kid? I don't know. You ever find Joe Panny? The Harbor Patrol found him floating around the harbor. He'd been shot and his feet were burnt. Gee whiz, torture. Well, what can I do to help? Find a girl who was once married to him. Joe Panny had a wife? Yeah, she wears a mink stole these days and carries a gun. She's tied up with it somewhere. Her name's Iris Carter. Iris Carter? You've met her? Just long enough to get slugged with her gun. Well, wait a minute. I'd like to get it all straight. Can I come over? I'll be here. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of a man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Expense account, item 9, $14 even, secretarial services. I dictated a detailed report of the $100,000 McCormick case. I did it for two reasons. One, to make certain that Allied and the New York police were thoroughly informed of my part of the matter. And two, to review the case for my own benefit. One of the key figures, Joe Panny, was a murder victim. Attached is a copy of that report. I tried to cover as closely as possible my conversation with Mike Cairn at Sing Sing when he tipped me off that Joe Panny had something to do with the McCormick burglary of five years ago. Also, one conversation with Joe Panny, his subsequent disappearance and murder. I had a copy for Frank Porter when he showed up at my room. He read it from top to bottom. Gee whiz, Johnny, if this isn't something. You come here for Joe Panny, looks like he did the McCormick job, now he's dead. You're stopped. What can you do? Find his wife, maybe? You're doing this at your own expense, aren't you? Oh, I think your company will pay for it in time. You have to recover the stuff. I know. You think you will? I think so, yeah. Well, your key man's dead. You have to start all over again. Maybe not. I don't really know whether Joe Panning was my key man or not. I still can't see a small-time auto thief working a big, slick safe burglary. Every indication is that he was the one. I know. I'd like to find that girl, Iris Carter, and talk to her about it. She's connected with it. Now, from what you say on the paper, yeah, very much. Oh, gee whiz, I feel like a fifth wheel. I'm not helping you a bit. You know, I handled this case for the company when it first broke. I worked with Lieutenant Martin for six months on it, and we didn't turn up a thing. You're on it three or four days, and you have all kinds of action. Well, I must have stepped in at the right time. Yeah. Johnny, mm-hmm. somebody gunned Joe Panny down. Now, I know you like to work alone and do things your own way, but be careful if you stay on this. I get worried when somebody starts shooting. Oh, sure. I didn't get that, though. Why? If I keep on this, I wouldn't let it go now if my life depended on it. I'm going to find that woman, and I'm going to find the stuff. Sure. Well, gee whiz. Don't let anything happen to you. I won't. I talked some more with Frank Porter about the case. He repeated his offer in the name of Allied Casually to help if he could. I told him I'd take it up on it if anything came up at all. He left. I was at Central Police Station ten minutes later. And five minutes after that, Lieutenant Dules Martin was calling for the medical examiner's report on Joe Panny's death. A uniformed man brought it in. Martin shoved it across the desk at me. 
The M.E. says Joe Panny's been dead about 48 hours or longer. 225 slugs right through the chest, penetrated both lungs, one through the neck. It's very neat shooting at that range. What range? Oh, at least 20 feet, maybe longer. Not many people shoot 25s that well. It's a little gun. A woman's gun. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Now, let's talk about that woman you saw around there that night. Now, you say it was Panny's ex. Yeah. Iris Carter. I don't know whether her gun was a 25 or 32. Well, think about it. I have. Now, look, don't get sore with me. It's just that she looks like better than ever for opening this case up. I put her on in all points. (sighs) Sorry I got riled. That's all right. Now, the M.E. thinks that Panny was killed before he was dumped in the water, possibly ambushed by someone he didn't know or didn't trust. If he's right about the range, that'd fit in. Someone who knew him would do it close up. Yeah. Hey, wait. You said his feet were burnt. Yeah, I got the pictures here to prove it. Yeah, take a look. These are the glossies. Uh-huh. Now, these are the burns here, Dollar. Right here. Here and here. Yeah. Then he wasn't ambushed, exactly. Look, I don't know what he was. But this is the crazy part. He was already dead when this happened. No rope marks on his legs or wrists. You don't sit still for burning, no matter how tough you are. It's fascinating, huh? Someone shot him down, then tried to make it look like he was tortured for information first. Cover up. He's supposed to look like he knew something, or had something. And maybe he didn't know or have anything at all. Oh, how do you feel? Lousy. If the burning was cover-up, then maybe the big search of his room was cover-up, too, to throw us off. Uh, uh, to throw you off. Not me. I wasn't in on it then. Yeah. Well, one thing that's genuine. What's that? The corpse. An hour and a half later, a witness was delivered to the office of Lieutenant Martin. His name was Edmund Thompson. He sold papers in the dock area. Both Martin and I looked at him twice, and I could tell both of us were doubting the credulity of anything he might have to say. Hi. Hi. My name's Martin. This is Mr. Dollar. Yes, sir. Glad to know you both. Now, would you mind telling us everything you saw the other night? Tuesday night. Yeah, it was Tuesday. Sure, why not? I... Saw this guy dumped in the water. We understand that. Can you tell us the circumstances? It's against the will of God. Yes, it certainly is. Against the laws of nature, too. What did you see, Mr. Thompson? I prayed for them both. You tried, Dollar? When did you pray? Right after I saw him. Yes, sir. On the street, huh? No. I was on the vacant lot. I was cutting across towards the dock. Oh. Then I see this car pull up. Long black car. A lot of chrome on it. This fella jumps out and goes around at the back. He opens the trunk. And he pulls this other fella out. Hoists him up and he carries him over the dock. Then he just lets him go. Then you prayed. Then I prayed. I was... A little too scared to do anything else. Uh, This car the man had. Long black one, a lot of chrome. Sedan or coupe? What's the difference? Two seats or one seat? One seat. Happen to get the license number? Uh. All right, all right, let that go. How about the man? Can you describe him? 
He stood there, looked down at the water, and started himself a cigarette. Well, what kind of a face did he have? Dark, light, a mustache, what? A devil's face. Oh, swell. Now, what does that mean? A devil? Mr. Thompson, do you understand that we want to apprehend this man, that he's responsible for one man's death, and that he might harm someone else? I'll pray for him. Pray for them all. Well, how was he dressed? Didn't notice. Hat? Don't know. Coat? Don't know. But he had a long black coupe. Do you know the make? Nope. Would you know him if you saw him again? Nope. Look, when you saw him dump a body into the water, why didn't you notify the police? Why should I? It's police business. Let them take care of their business. I'll take care of mine. Any of you fellas got a cigarette on you? I left Lieutenant Martin brooding over his witness and went out for a bite of dinner. When I called him later, he hadn't learned anything more, so I decided to call it a night and went back to my hotel. I found a note waiting for me from Jack Lang, the band leader friend of Iris Carter. Said he'd got a tip. She'd worked at one time at the Elmar Theater in the Bronx. If I learned anything, please let him know. He was still in love with her. Elmar Theater. I decided my night was far from over. Buy a ticket out front if you want to look at the girl. I only want to see one. Her name's Iris Carter. Does she work here? I just told you, go buy a ticket out front. Just tell me this. Does Iris Carter work here? Is the name familiar to you? Have you ever seen her or heard of her? You give me any more trouble, I'll clutch. I told you, go out front. Can't you answer a simple question? I'm looking for Iris Carter. Iris Carter. You don't have to yell at mister. You never heard of it. What? Call me a cop, Gloria. Never this mind, guy's giving me... Never mind, I'll take care of him. Come on, you. Iris Carter, is that what you said? Yeah. I got to change. I got to get back on in five minutes. Then I'll talk to you later. You haven't got much to say. Stick around. I'll change back to the screen. Okay. I'm Gloria Ward. Who are you? Johnny Dollar. What do you want with Iris Carter? I want to see her and tell her something. Tell me. Well, for one thing, her ex-husband's dead. What? Oh, better watch that screen. Oh, oh. Say that again. Joe Panny, her ex-husband's dead. No kidding. That no good bum is really dead. Yeah. Where can I find her? She don't work here no more. Hasn't worked here in four or five years. She quit. Well, where is she? You took over from the old man out there when you heard me mention her name. You've satisfied yourself that I'm really looking for her, so suppose you... Don't you flip with me, mister. I'm not satisfied about anything. <clears throat> where is she? She got herself married to a nice guy. Good for her. Is she in town? Sure, you just want to see her and tell her Joe's dead. That's about it. I thought maybe she might be able to help me and the police find out who killed him. He was killed? Two days ago. They found his body today. How do you know about that? Are you a cop? I'm an insurance investigator. And you have to see her? You want it put in writing? Don't get in a huff. What I'm getting at is this. Quick change, huh? Now listen. Iris is good. You know what I mean? And she's married to a nice guy now. Will any of this make her trouble? Not if she hasn't done anything wrong. Well, I can tell you she hasn't. If it does make trouble, it'd be a shame. She's set up nice, and I like to see a girl set well, don't you? Certainly. I haven't seen her almost since she left here, but... Well, you look like a right kind of guy. I believe you. Thanks, Gloria. 
She lives out in Long Island now. Her name's McCormick. Iris McCormick. By the time I said goodbye to Gloria and walked out the stage door and got out into the alley, I thought I had most of it figured. The ex-wife of an ex-con married a wealthy Long Islander named McCormick. When the honeymoon was over, the safe was robbed. Walking out that alley, I was wondering whether to phone the police or allied casualty first. It isn't bad. Did you see him? I didn't see nobody. The car. See the car. The one that just gunned out. Oh, the car. We had a long black coupe, a lot of chrome. A fellow didn't have his lights on. Hey, that's against the law. Hey, you need help, mister. No. No, I'm all right. Now, here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, the end of the trail of a 38 caliber slug. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Ready with your party in Hartford, Connecticut, Mr. Dollar. Go ahead, please. Hello, Mr. Barth. Yes? This is Johnny Dollar. Johnny, what's up? Now, listen carefully, Ed. I've just been shot. What? Oh, it's nothing serious. I'm backstage at the Elmar Theater in the Bronx. Johnny... I'm all right. Now, listen to me. I got a tip from old Mike Cairn, a convict, that a man named Joe Panny might have had something to do with the McCormick case a few years ago. Yes, a jewelry case, $100,000. Well, Panny's been murdered. I didn't get a chance to learn anything from him, but I have learned that Panny's ex-wife is married to Julian McCormick. You've uh, contacted our New York office? I've been trying to get your man Frank Porter at his home, but no one answers. It's going to be pretty nasty for Allied Casualty if she plotted with this Joe Panny to rob McCormick. Yeah. Do you want me to wait and let Frank Porter handle it? No, no, no. You go ahead. If somebody's throwing bullets around, they'd better be stopped before... Oh, well... By me rather than Frank Porter, huh? Okay. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. 
America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures incurred during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Item 11, seven dollars and a half, one bottle of scotch, which I sent the stage doorman out to get while I was calling Ed Barth at Allied Insurance. Apparently everybody in the neighborhood thought the exchange of shots between me and somebody in a long black coupe were backfires. It was the doorman who dragged me back in the theater. Uh, you got yourself a boy now, mister. Ah, it's just a graze. Well, I sure don't get you. Call an insurance people and not police. Somebody fires a gun, don't you call the cops? Have another drink. That's the way it's easy. Hey, hey, where you going? You should see a doctor. Later. I went back outside in the alley where the shooting had taken place. Ten minutes of looking around, and I dug a pair of thirty-eight slugs out of a telephone post. Expense account, item 12, $4.35, cab fare, Elmar Theater to Long Island. It was 12 o'clock straight up when I got to the McCormick home. There were no lights burning, and apparently everyone had retired for the night. I checked the garage first. A 55 Cadillac convertible and a four-year-old Jag. No warm motors, no black coupes. I went to the house. Oh, it's you. Hello, Mrs. McCormick. No, no, please. Please don't come in here. My husband... Oh, please. I don't know who you are, but I remember meeting you at the hotel the other day. I'm Johnny Dollar, an insurance investigator. Insurance? Oh, well, there must be some way we can fix this up. Talk to me tomorrow. I'll meet you somewhere. How can you fix up murder? Murder? What are you talking about? Joe Panny's dead. Your ex-husband. He was shot with a twenty-five, Just like the one you swung at me at the hotel. Oh, no. <laughs> you want to tell me about that? All right, I'll tell you. Joe was your husband once. You helped him rob this house five years ago. He couldn't have done it alone. He wasn't that slick. He wasn't that good. He could steal a car, but a safe lock's different from ignition. Well? Yes. Yes, I helped him do it. He made me. He promised me if I helped him, I'd never hear from him again. I opened the safe for him. But you were down to see him at his hotel the other night. You searched his room. Searched his room? Yeah. Well, I don't know anything about that. He called me, said he wanted money. I didn't know where he'd been for these last few years. Up the river. Oh, well, he wanted money. Only he wasn't there when I went there. And I was? Yes. And the gun? I went down there to kill him. But I didn't see him. Not then. Later somewhere. I haven't seen him at all, I tell you. Just talked to him on the phone. I, I don't suppose it would make any difference if I told you I had a good reason. If I told you I loved my husband very much. Not likely. In view of the fact you helped your ex-husband rob him of $100,000 worth of jewelry five years ago. Oh, I can explain that. Joe came around when we got back from our honeymoon... It's an old story. My past isn't all it... Well, anyhow. Joe threatened to tell my husband about it, unless I gave him money. I didn't have any, so I opened the safe for him that night. It was all I could think to do. Yeah. Then you split with him later on. I told you, I haven't seen him. Why would I want to do that? I have everything I want in life, right here. Mostly my husband. Well, it's still a police matter, Mrs. McCormick. 
I spent a long time looking for you. Maybe you better get your coat. Iris. Oh. You remain exactly where you are. Julian. And so will you, Mr. Dollar. Julian, you heard what I said. Don't worry about it, my dear. Mr. Dollar, I'm a gentleman. But this is a gun. I noticed. A thirty-eight. I got a couple of slugs in my pocket that came from it. Stand over there. Now, this is pretty silly. You can put that thing away and we can settle this my the only way it can be settled. My wife has told you the absolute truth, Mr. Dollar. She's innocent of any wrongdoing so far as I'm concerned. Is that clear? It's pretty glib, McCormick. She's accessory to a $100,000 heist and she hasn't done anything wrong. If she wanted to give them away... To an ex-husband. To anybody. That was her affair. I would not press charges. Well, that takes care of you. How are you going to square it with allied casualty in the state of New York? And you also forget a little matter of a dead man. But I haven't forgotten you, Mr. Dollar. Julian, please don't. I've caused enough trouble, please. Calm yourself, my dear. This is the least I can do for you. After what you've done for me. Just being my wife. Mr. Dollar, will you accept money? Not enough for murder. Fifty, uh, hundred thousand... I'd hate to kill you, Mr. Dollar. You tried once tonight. You've referred to that before. But you weren't very good, and now you're even worse. You forgot to take the safety off that gun. The safety! Oh, no! Oh, you killed him! You killed him! Ah, he's all right. Get out of the way and let me see that gun. (laughs) I wasn't interested in either one of them for the moment. I was looking at the thirty-eight I'd taken from Julian McCormick. There was a smear of cosmoline still inside the barrel. I sniffed it, checked it, found all chambers loaded. It was a brand new weapon, and it had never been fired. Expense account item 13, five dollars and a half, cab fare again, this time from Long Island to an apartment in Queens. The man I wanted to see was Allied Casualties man Frank Porter. He lived in a very polite neighborhood. Uh, that's apartment 203, but Mr. Porter is not in, sir. I'll wait for him. Yes, sir. It's all right if I sit in your lobby, isn't it? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But uh, I'd prefer that you waited somewhere else. You would? Well, this is a rather exclusive apartment building, sir, and we don't like people uh, loitering in the lobby. Well, I'm on a pretty exclusive mission. But uh, you don't like the mud on my clothes and the tear on my coat, huh? Are you a friend of Mr. Porter's? Yeah. Good friend? He wouldn't mind if I waited in his apartment, if that's what you mean. No, sir. Impossible. But a couple of bucks can do wonders sometimes. It was quite a layout. Books, pictures, furniture, and whatnots that make living at home pretty agreeable. I propped myself up on a stool at Frank's little bar, poured myself a drink, and sat there waiting for him. I was like that a half an hour later when he showed up. He looked a little unsteady on his feet. Well, gee whiz, Johnny Dollar. Hi. You're the last person in the world I expected to see. I'm glad to light and let you in. I didn't think you'd mind. No, not at all. I tried to phone you earlier tonight. You were out. I'm sorry. Chief Whiz, what's on your mind, Johnny? I wanted to tell you I was shot at tonight. What? I wanted to tell you I found out who Mrs. McCormick is and was. Since you were on the case first for Allied, I thought I'd tell you first. Well, Chief Whiz. Say, this is a nice setup. Full of nice things. Yeah. I've been in places like this before, Frank. 
They usually start at 300 or better a month. But maid service, phone service, all those things cost money. A lot of money. Don't they, Frank? Gee whiz. When did you tumble to it, Johnny? A little while ago, when I was out on Long Island, Julian McCormick made me a proposition. He finally offered me $100,000. A lot of money. He sounded like he'd had experience making propositions. I should have tumbled to it a couple of days ago when you phoned the parole office after I left you. You used my name when you asked for Joe Panny's address. Yeah. I wondered if your tip was on the right track. I didn't figure Joe Panny was eligible for parole so quick. I had to get to him before you did. He wasn't the kind to keep his mouth shut. You shut it for him, didn't you, Frank? Mind if I sit down, Johnny? Now, go ahead. They'll be strapping you down one of these days. <laughs> Gee whiz. No hundred and a half a week investigating claims by nice places like this. It was one of those lucky things, Johnny. When I was called to Long Island to investigate that heist five years ago, I met McCormick's wife. Happened to recognize her as Joe Penny's ex. And you knew McCormick was in love with his wife enough to pay you to keep quiet. I gave him service for his money. The cops would have broken that case in 24 hours, but I covered up all the tracks I could find. And I made it real safe by seeing Joe sent up the river. How? Just tipped off the cops to some of his hot car deals, and they picked him up. He happened to be carrying a gun, so he got the works. Then you just sat around drawing blackmail from McCormick. Gee whiz. Don't look at me like that, Johnny. Every guy has his price. How about you? <laughs> That's the second offer I've had tonight. It's a good one. Joe Panny was a dumb guy. He picked up that jewelry and went right downtown and plunked it in a safe deposit box been sitting there all the time he was up the river. Still worth... Sorry, Frank. You sure? I'm sure. Chief Whist. Chief Whist, Johnny, you are a good dick. You don't buy off. I just wanted to see, I guess. Sure, Frank. Well, do we go in quietly? (laughs) You'd be surprised, Johnny, how quiet. You better dial for an ambulance if you want me to go to the trial. What? You you were good in that alley back of the theater tonight, Johnny, when I tried to knock you off. I followed you all night looking for my chance. You you nicked me twice. Dial the doc. Quick, quick. Gee, where's it hurt? He died right there, without saying another word. The disposition of the case and what to do about Frank Porter, an insurance adjuster who goes bad, is a matter I don't have to handle. And I'm glad. Expense account item 14, hotel and board in New York City, $79.30. Item 15, $84, legal fees and incidental expenses involved in locating the widow of Mike Cairns, who it seems is still alive somewhere in Iowa and will accept half the reward as promised. Item 16, $14 even, transportation back to Hartford. Expense account total, $265.91. Remarks, she was. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) 
Now, here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about next week's story. Thanks. Next week, the story of a ship, the Molly Kay. Destination, Davy Jones' locker. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Mary Jane Croft, Virginia Gregg, Marvin Miller, Forrest Lewis, Frank Gerstle, Herb Butterfield, Herb Ellis, Tony Barrett, Ken Christie, Jack Crucian, and Junius Matthews. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. folks jeff do you want to start off sure uh i loved it i i, I thought the the acting was was wonderful i thought the writing was great i i really liked the frame of the expense account right which sounds so strange like let's let's do and let's frame it with an expense account and some of the stuff that he put on there you know like seven dollars for a bottle of whiskey to give to the doorman at the theater <laughs> yeah. and i guess in some of my reading he kind of had some fun with that in other episodes like two cents for my thoughts and things like that so i i really enjoyed that the expense account and what he was going to charge to the company mm-hmm. you know i think the narration in these kind of detective shows you know really works you know, and I think his voice was great. So I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yes. Same here. He's just, uh, he carries the whole thing through. It's like he, he holds the energy with every single line. And I was just so blown away by by his performance and, also, and everybody's performance. I mean, mm. the, the way the whole narrative was structured and woven together was really impressive. I really dug it. I really love, both him and Frank Lovejoy strike me as similar kinds of vein of, of their acting style, where they come across as tough as nails, but in, in a line or two, they can really show some interesting vulnerability to a character that they really care about. Yep. Or that they have sympathy for. Sure. And it's, it just, it leads the audience so much. And one of the great things about this is just... The pacing is just phenomenal. Not just his pacing, but all the other actors as well. I remember when he was sitting there talking to like the supervisor at the building. And mm. she was an awesome character because she was just giving basically nothing away. And you could feel the tension. He's like, yeah, you, do you know her? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> when did you see her? Yeah, she wasn't giving anything. I mean, have you seen her in a while? <laughs> Not in a yeah. while. So is, is she work around here? Not around here. Yeah. That's oh, great. But yeah. you you know she works. <laughs> Heard she works in a library. Yeah. Where about is it? About there, out there somewhere, a couple of blocks. That was such you a know, great like character. This, that was so great. Yeah, and I think like they had this is the this is the thing and they had some really great actors that acted in the show with them as well. And this one, if I remember correctly, it's Virginia Gregg. Oh, she and did. she played like the main two female characters in both yep. of she played both roles and what a great actress for them. Oh, but fantastic. they also had some 
Oh, yes. Other people like Harry Bartell, which we're very familiar <laughs> with at this point in, in, in the show. Why do I want some wine right now? And Yeah, exactly. And Alan Reed. Wow. Good old Fred Flintstone himself showed up once in a while for as a stock of supporting actors, too. So there was a bunch of people. Lillian Boyeff, uh Tony Barrett, uh, Forrest Lewis, Vic Perrin, Lawrence Dobkins, mm-hmm. Stacey Harris. There's Howard McNear, which is a name I hear an awful lot. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of people that were just solid actors that they had in their stable that they could pull out for a role here and there. You know, you speak about the acting, and I think, I don't know who the the actor was, but was it Frank Porter, the the, uh, the guy at the end? Was that his name in the show? Yeah. At the end when he's, you know, the jig's up, you know, and, and he just keeps going, oh, gee whiz. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's just, it's just you're listening to it, and you, you feel so bad for this guy. For sure, because he's he's not like an evil villain. He's a guy who took the money and yep. you know and like that. And he's just going, ah, gee whiz, Johnny. Yep. I really like the nuance of people's characterizations and their motivations in this. In some ways, it reminded me of a yes, mm-hmm. maybe a soft boiled, not really not too hard boiled version of a Cornell Woolrich. When, when you know, I've, I've mentioned him, you know, a couple times. One of my favorite, you know, authors of hard boiled noir fiction, right, and. One of the things about his stories is that as soon as you start getting into either one, you start getting this feeling of an entire world that this is taking part in. Mm-hmm. And everything reflects this larger reality and this verisimilitude about that reality. And even though it's not quite as dark and depressing, I get a similar feeling with Johnny Dollar where every character, it's like you suddenly get a, a deeper glimpse into what this world is. Yes. And how all the characters keep reflecting that, whether it be the the landlady who can barely get a sentence out of her mouth, or the poor ex husband who uh, you know ends up getting killed. I thought that was interesting with the the whole um, you know yeah we've only been hanging around. I bought you a couple of drinks. Hey, you want to go visit a friend of mine? It's like what the heck's this all about? <laughs> yeah, know. You know, in this day and age, I'd be like, what, what's up, buddy? You know what what exactly is going on here? <laughs> I had yeah. the same feeling. <laughs> And the fact that the guy said, yeah, I was like, okay. You're an okay guy. This sounds like a good time. Let's go do it. You yeah. know, People were pretty bored <laughs> back then. But the Let's world just feels way, very right? real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they must yeah. have been. <laughs> in a world without Netflix and internet, what are you going to do? Wow, let's just go for a drive. Sounds good to That's me, That's right. Man. And, you know, Johnny Dollar had just That's started, right. so, you know, people can't listen to that yet. Yep. So, you know. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the things, and especially, I think, in this kind of detective genre, when I listen to it, if I can feel the grit, if I can imagine, you know what I mean, the city and everything, then I'm really engaged in it. And I really could. I could feel when he's out and back in the theater, and, you know, and the guy shoots at him and... It, I don't know. I could just like feel the grit of the of the city, and and I thought that was incredibly inf- effective. There's like a pause, yeah, yeah, that that happens over yeah. this entire kind of good noir. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's sort of it's like this this in, in, contagious fog to borrow Shakespeare ah. that that covers everything, right? You know. Yes. You were gonna say Lothar. Sorry. Oh no, I'm just I'm just agreeing. I just think uh, you know, it was amazing the way that the the city came through as a character by the end. I'm like, wow, that. Yeah. You know, we don't. I, I don't even know if it if they did say what city they were in. I don't remember catching it, but whatever city it was, it, it felt alive and felt like it was its own character. Yeah, I think they were in New York City, and and, and but oh, that's where the Sing Sing is. But that's right. But, they did mention that. Yeah. I thought it's interesting that he's. He lives in Hartford, Johnny Dollar, which is, of course, the insurance capital of the world, right? Is it really? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Hartford, Connecticut, that's their claim to fame. Yep. Is insurance. I didn't know that. Yeah, and the fact that he he lives in Hartford, 
you know, That's I, I'm sure it was intentional, but I, I just got a kick out of it. Yeah, it's like an actor needs to live in Los Angeles, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's where his work is, right? Exactly. You, you were saying, though, um, the framing of using the expense account is a great framing tool. And there's something else unique about Johnny Dollar, which you don't see in a lot of other detective shows or noirs, is he doesn't have a secretary and he doesn't have a partner. Good point. <laughs> Yeah, I never thought of that. And I like this because it is just him. It adds to this kind of loneliness, this emptiness, this solitary man, like he's going from one place to another. And instead of having those people t- as, a, as a touchstone of home for him, he'll get phone calls. And this happens in a lot of the sh- uh, Johnny Dollar shows that you get sort of in between acts or in between shows. He'll get a phone call going like... Give this to me one more time. What, what's your name again? Mr. Dollar. All right, Mr. Dollar, what had happened to you? Well, I got hit in the back of the head of so-and-so, you know. And then and so it's either a, a cop or it's the person who's hired him for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's on the radio just sort of updating us in a, in a realistic way about what happened as opposed to spending too much time in his expense account giving us too much background detail of the story. It usually comes through like some kind of phone call. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the expense account does another thing where it really does emphasize that mercenary quality where he's not a, you know, a horrible mercenary, but that's got to have an interesting life. And, and, you know, the fact that he doesn't have the supporting characters like you just mentioned reinforces that this is this is an, a different lifestyle for people. It's very glamorous if you're on the outside, but maybe a little sad if you're on the inside. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the fact that he's he is mercenary and he is taking all this, but he doesn't take the money in the end. Yeah. Right? That's right. From McCormick. He's offered... Fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, and which is a lot of money today, but it certainly was a lot more money then. For sure. But you know, he doesn't. He never thinks twice. He's got that. He's that good character. But I, but like you said, Jack, you know, there's a little shade of gray in there as well. But in the end, I think he's he's good. And I think you need that because it's it's the same thing as Sam Spade character. Like if you're thinking about something like the Maltese Falcon. Yes. If you're constantly wondering whether this person's going to walk on the other side of the street and become a bad guy. That adds extra tension for the audience because they're not Mm -hmm. quite sure if he really is a good person in the end, if he's going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's layers. You know, it's like the Indiana Jones thing. It's like all of those good characters Mm. that have certainly gray areas there. They could go either way. For sure. I want to talk a little bit about Jack Johnston. The guy who is the director and actually wrote some of these episodes as well. Uh, there's not. I'm. I'm really sad that he had a really long career in radio drama and he's not even listed in Wikipedia. Really, really. He doesn't have his own listing. I mean, he's he doesn't have his own link for stuff like this. This is the guy who basically started with Buck Rogers in the 25th century in the 30s. Oh yeah. And then okay. he moved his way down to Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and and he passed away in 91. And they did a the Los Angeles Times did a nice article about him. He was doing things like hiring people for a Hollywood star playhouse. You know, people like Barbara Stanwyck and James Stewart. He worked with so many people throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And you think it's so sad that this guy who has dramatized Ray Bradbury and and in you know and and did William Shakespeare and The Six Shooter, which is one of my favorite, and he's not recognized to this day as well he should be for what he's done. And Johnny Dollar was a real stake as one of the best audio dramas that people remember. My mom still remembers listening to 
yours truly, Johnny Dollar. So, oh, really? It was a really wow. solid show. Obviously, if it went from the late 40s to 1962. Yeah. 809 episodes. There you go. With only one small hiatus in between yeah. a year or two. Obviously, it was a really powerful show for him to work on it and put his name on it. So I'm kind of disappointed that Jack Johnstone isn't recognized as much as he is. Yeah. You're going to have to start one, Jack. I will. <laughs> did you catch who wrote this particular episode no so it was a guy named john dawson which is actually a pseudonym for e jack newman who was an edgar and peabody award-winning american writer and producer and he has a wikipedia page so there you go <laughs> but he was well known for being an incredible writer i don't know why he took the maybe at the time he didn't want to like mix two places but you'll love this he wrote a ton of gun smoke oh. and he also uh, he wrote television gun smoke as well wow he also wrote fort laramie in the radio mm-hmm. richard diamond which we've talked about yep. before all stellar shows amazing writing oh my god have gun will yeah. travel Yep. Oh, yeah, that's great. And in t- television, he wrote for Bonanza and Wagon Train and The Asphalt Jungle. These are th- these are shows that are old now. Uh, Dr. Kildare, The Untouchables. These are shows that are old now, but were really solid shows at the time. Yep. Oh, people yeah. didn't recognize them by the oh, time. Yeah. They were really, really important. That is so cool. Something about the writing, which I really liked in retrospect. At first, I thought it was going to be hokey, because I don't know about you guys, but as soon as we heard about Iris Carter... Um, I'm like, that's the wife, the wife that we didn't get to see. That was clear. That was telegraphed. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, get no. on with it. I mean, how come nobody knows yeah. this? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. The and then we get the twist <laughs> where really she's not the femme fatale we thought she was. And then there's a little bit of a reason as to why no. maybe yes. people haven't connected the dots because maybe the other detective kind of hushed things up a little bit. Right. Yeah. But I kept wondering, why aren't the police knowing that this Iris Carter is the, didn't they investigate this? Don't they know what her maiden name was? And, and then by the end, I'm like, okay, I buy it a little bit more. And I really like the twist on her characterization. I do too. Um, you know, that she wasn't the bad person. Yes. She was just trying to get her life together. Right. And I think that's good. Absolutely. And I think it goes with what you said, Jack, about just not going in with the tropes of the secretary and the partner and all that stuff. They're really going in different directions here in... Uh, like you said, Lothar, I thought the same thing. It's like, wait a minute, how come nobody knows this is the wife? And and um, but you just go with it, and you're right. It was it was just well done. I just I there was little twists in the end, and you think it might be the husband, but he looks at the gun, and it's still got the you know the wax on it because it's never been fired. And and I was like, this is this is good. Yeah, this is well done. And it pro- provides a little bit more area to ponder when i'm blanking on his name the guy who died who was the criminal who everybody thought that he did the the crime at the beginning jojo yes thank you um yeah when joe's you know supposedly crying out mccormick in his sleep well you know not only is there the whole crime element there but we've got you know is he really you know pining over his lost wife that's now moved on that he'll know he'll never get again right didn't think of that till till just now good job yeah, that's good. And you really feel for the husband, too. Very like you much feel so. feel for all the characters in there, right? Because yeah. he's sitting there, and he's saying, no, 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 that's fine. I don't care. You know, they were my wife's. If she wants to, if they're, if she stole them, she didn't steal them. They're hers right. to take. They're so solid because it was so important. And then, and little lines that they throw in, like, when he talks about, when he originally talks about the loss of the jewels, and he says, you know, a husband hates to lose beautiful things. Yes. Right. That was such a strong telegraph, especially because he wasn't going to let Dollar see his wife right there. And it's like to the audience, we're like, oh, okay, we're getting a big clue here. Right. But not exactly in the way we think until the end when the other shoe drops and you go, 
oh, that's what it really means. Okay, now I get it a little bit more. Yeah. Right, and, and yeah. I think it makes it more powerful when you go with how that always happens. You know, it, it seems like she's younger than he is, the, the husband. The husband. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, right. and yet they don't and, say it. No, right? they don't it say it, but like I, you get the sense, yeah. right? And so, for sure. at least my mind, you know, it goes to, okay, here it is. You know, she marries the guy for his money, and, you know, it's all this. But then when she's talking to Johnny Dollar and she's saying, no, I, I really love this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're going, okay, so they just blew up another one of those tropes that always happens in these kinds of things. And um, so uh, well done, well done. Well, the uh, the actor who played the husband, McCormick, was so good because he sounded older without sounding too old. You know, it was just like, yes. he's obviously not a young man. He may not be ancient, but, and then the subtext of this is America again. This isn't re- there isn't a whole lot of old money. It's probably someone who's a self-made businessman who's you know raised his own fortune, which means he's not going to be super young. Right. So all that sort of like works in the background to create this without it having to be too explicit. Agreed. I just noticed too. I didn't realize this back on the E. Jack Newman for one second. He actually wrote a Twilight Zone episode too. Wow. He wrote the Trouble with Templeton, the tra- Twilight Zone. Not not one of the number one shows, but just being able to write for that was uh, is a huge feather in your cap. Not too many people got that chance. And something that the grisly side of me likes is the gunplay and the fact that people got hit. There was consequences. You still had the whole, oh, it's just a flesh wound. But at the same time, he, he, you know, Johnny passes out in between what was it four and five or three and four? Or, you know, the oh no, you know, what's up? What's up with him? And uh, you know, so there was. Yep. You know, sometimes a lot of shows there's not a whole lot of violence, and I don't want to be like a, a violent hound, but at the same time, sometimes you want a little bit of that in this type of show to make it realistic, and I thought they did that very well. Yeah, and even when she cracks him over the head, she doesn't knock him out instantly. Like she doesn't just knock him out. Yeah, she knocks him off mm-hmm. his pins enough that he she can get away, <laughs> which is probably more realistic, right? If right. you'll. I, you know, I know we expect a little bit of being knocked out and some of that, but somebody was telling me, it's like, if you get knocked out that much as a detective, you would have so much brain damage. Yeah. <laughs> be, exactly. Yeah, if not oh, dead, yeah. it's easy to kill somebody <laughs> than to knock them out, they were saying. so. <laughs> it's crazy. not, yeah. What I also liked about it was that it wasn't being knocked out. He was stunned. But yes. one of the things I, I liked is that, you know, if, if anybody's been hit on when you're not expecting it. Oh, yeah. Right. Even if it doesn't knock you out, it does stun you. Right. And you're kind of like, whoa, you know, if you're prepared for it, it's one thing. But if it's not, you're not exactly unconscious, but you are ineffective for, you know, a few seconds, if not a little bit more. And um, the fact that he was able to hold it together enough to sort of like not go fully into that stage also sort of shows that he's a tough guy. Right. Yes. But in a more realistic way than just shrugging off a, you know, piece of metal up beside his head. <laughs> right. Well, it's the same thing. I, we've talked about this before. If you devise a character who you know, doesn't fall down when he gets hit. I, I find that less interesting. Right. You know, I, I think there should be some vulnerability in the character. There, there, it's it's just... Exactly. Uh, you know, where do you go if you can't do anything? So he gets hit. But he also, you know, he has the wherewithal to know what kind of a gun it was, too, uh, which is pretty interesting. Well, that was one of the things that was so, uh, you know... Um, made the, the Daredevil show on Netflix so popular with some people was the fact that it was really about just how many times he gets up. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not that he could never get knocked down. It's that this is a guy that you better kill him because he's never going to stop getting up. That's right. Yeah, that's great. I think so. It's the Indiana Jones thing again, you know, and, and it's just, 
you punch him, he falls down. He's going to get back up again, and, and yep. he's got, he's going to win in the end. But still, it's fun to watch that that yeah. struggle. That that airplane fight scene in Raiders. It always gets me with a big guy, the big bald guy who's like the big Nazi. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> punches yeah. him in the face, and his knees go weak, and he falls down, and he still can't beat him. He just ends up getting out of the way while in a propeller blade takes him out exactly and, <laughs> and harrison ford does such a good job in that because you can see he's scared i mean this huge guy's coming after you oh yeah and, and you can see that he's he's not just like oh yeah i'll take this he goes he's you can see he's in his mind he's going holy shit. you know and uh <laughs> and so it's great it's just great well we've had such a long show i'm happy to have a shorter uh chat about this because i think yeah i wanted to talk quickly just about the format of the five shows i like that because because i think what happens in that it really allows you to develop the story in like Mm -hmm. five acts which is kind of cool yeah the serial format's interesting yeah so do you do did you like the 15 minute you know five Uh, parts here's here's my thing is normally i don't care for the 15 minute format just because i feel like it's just getting started and it ends but when i could listen to it all five in a row i was i i loved it and i could i always try to bring myself to think how it might have been to be sitting in a living room in 1955 and listening to this with your family and it probably would have frustrated me you know 15 Mm -hmm. minutes on i gotta wait till tomorrow night for 15 minutes more but but because it was so good but uh, so normally I don't care for the 15 minute, but yes. because I could listen to it all as a serial, I loved it. What about you, Lothar? I have a, a similar reaction to serials sometime. I really appreciate it and I want to listen to more and sort of analyze it a little bit more because um, I really want to sort of dig a little deeper into it. But I like the way it was paced. Uh, and th- I think that's what makes a serial work or not is the pacing of the serials. If you're just splitting it up artificially, then yeah, it's going to be frustrating, but it, it almost felt like each one was had its own theme at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if the plot was continuing, like I know the second to the third and the third to the fourth kind of covered over, but there was a focus on a specific type of character and a specific type of what he's investigating. So each one felt a little bit more like the chapter in a book to where I didn't have a problem going, you know, now's a good place to close it. I'll pick it up and read it again tomorrow. It had that similar sort of feeling. And so I thought that was very... Very well done. I really like the, uh, the the pacing of the serial structure. And something that'd be interesting if we ever come back to this again in a year or so to do another series, it'd be interesting to listen to some in between that and analyze it. And specifically, I'm thinking of you, Jeff, of if this is done in five, you know, five act serials, how closely does it follow the the classic Shakespearean five act structure? Or is it doing uh-huh. its own thing? That'd be an interesting thing to look into. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. That would be fun. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I think that, you know, of course, there is some question as to whether or not Shakespeare separated it up into acts, but it's certainly that way in the folio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, And there certainly is a, there definitely is a pattern to what was going on, especially in his earlier plays. So I think that would be a fun thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and sometimes it's, it's less about structure and more about cadence. Mm -hmm. And it seems like his cadence was five acts, whether there was an actual structure around that or not. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. It it does break it. It does naturally break. And like I say, you can look at, you can analyze those, especially his earlier ones and say, okay, you know, this is, he's introducing characters. He's doing this, he's doing that. Like Shakespeare, a lot of times, act three, scene three is the climax yeah. point. Yeah, because it's interesting, like things like it's different between like A Midsummer Night's Dream, the main plot's over by the end of act four. Sure. That's what happens and a lot. And act five yeah. is it's just strictly for fun as an afterthought more than anything else, right? Right. So the, the, the main thing. But it's just interesting how uh, uh, 
opposed to that, Hamlet, on the other hand, oh, yeah. it, it keeps you going right to the end, basically, right? Oh, yeah. Those tragedies. Othello, Othello is the same thing. Yes. So maybe it's a difference with comedies and tragedies. And so is Macbeth, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, definitely. And, and then think, the later I plays, think you're right. like Winter's Tale and those, they, they are even more layered. Right. Like you can listen to Winter's Tale and you think the first act feels like a tragedy and the second act, all of a sudden you're in the, you know, you're in the, the country and it feels like a comedy and then it comes back around again. So mm. it's a very interesting stuff. For sure. Yeah. So how do you feel like I've been structuring Philippa Graves' Grave Shift as a two-parter because I like the idea of having sort of two 25-minute shows and leaving off as a halfway through mm-hmm. and taking it through. Because again, I'm trying to go with a straight, a, a strong sort of noir mystery right. series as opposed to just the flavor. Because I look at things like, I love Blackjack mm-hmm. Justice, but if you look at it, it's more of a comedy than it's a noir. Yes. And the story is almost put aside. It's almost, uh, it's not nearly as important as the characterization between those two characters and the people who come in with the odd kind of request. Yeah, I would say the only time that changes is when the two mix perfectly, like uh, the one that uh, Greg got a lot of awards for, The Albatross, right? where the plot was important, but the plot was so important because of how it reflected on the characters, and both of those sides merged together. But, you know, outside of those times, yeah, I completely agree with you. Well, when you're doing this kind of show for a long time, and Greg Taylor did it for 12 seasons, That's 12 amazing. That's amazing. Season. Yep. And Red Panda was 13 seasons. Wow. Uh, 12 episodes a season. Yep. So, I mean, I don't know anyone who has that kind of, maybe Jerry Robbins, who has that kind of output of writing. Exactly. How do you maintain that? I think it was the same problem that you had with, uh, even you were talking about The Shadow, Oftentimes they got into characters where there was there was really no shadow in it. It was a detective story, and they had Lamont Cranston take care of the whole thing, you know, because you had to change <laughs> things up, yep. or else it become too much the same. So I'm surprised that this format lasted as well as it did. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think that a difference between where the serial comes in, which is really interesting, I think for me, because we've got ones where it's like, okay, here's a series, and it keeps going on and on and on and then you've got the done in one and that's what Greg Taylor was so great at with all of his shows was every show was pretty much a done in one and he was sort of a master of that the uh, but the serial is sort of like it's not that ongoing series that never quite ends or maybe tells a long sprawling epic it's not the done in one episodes it's something different and I I've never tried writing that myself I'm, I'm a little intrigued and maybe want to give it a shot now cool do it <laughs> So thank you very much for uh, letting me bring you yours truly, Johnny Dollar. I know neither one of you had had chance to listen to it that often, and I know I'm going back right. and listening to some more. I'm going to try my best to try to sort of flip it around and see if I can listen to a 30-minute one and then a five-parter and see the differences in the structure, too. Good idea. I think that would be a really cool Ooh, thing nice. to see because yeah. it's the same show, but how it's structured can make a really big difference in that. Absolutely. Way. What do we have coming up for the next Sonic Echo? Well, the you know I, I reserve the right to maybe change my mind, but I'm uh, looking at Mr. Keen, Tracer <laughs> of Lost Persons. Yay. Yeah, I think you'll find fun with that. I'll have to listen to that. It was that and Casey Crime Reporter. I forget Casey something Crime Reporter that I'd listen to those two shows very close together. And so they they run over in my head very similarly, even though they're totally different stories. Hmm. But I I, I found them both at the same time. Would the the Casey one be worth uh, doing sometime in the future? Yeah, I I think there's some good episodes in that as well. That's the thing is... 
the old time radio did detective stuff and horror stuff extremely well. Yes. I think the medium of audio worked really well for those particular genres very specifically yeah. well. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, yeah, and the Western and the and it's basically radio just rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, you, if you think about the Western, too, I mean, if you think about American TV in its early days, mm-hmm. boy, it was preponderance of Westerns, right? <laughs> Felt like every show was a Western and, you know, not so much in the early 60s when I started remembering it, but when you get the reruns of all those shows, boy, Westerns were everything. Did I tell you my dad's story about their color TV? No. <laughs> no. So my father loves Westerns, of course, and I grew to love them even oh, yeah. as I got older with his Westerns. I, I enjoyed them, but I didn't love them as much as I do now. Me too. And his father ran a hardware store, and so he often got things. My dad got the first 10-speed bike in the town kind of thing, Whew. and they got the one of the first color TVs. But the first color TV that he got was really a black-and-white TV with this kind of like paper gauze on the front, which had three stripes. <laughs> It had like a blue stripe at the top. It had a green stripe down below and it had a yellow stripe in the middle. And my dad said it was pretty much terrible for everything. And most people ripped it off. That was their first attempt at color. But he said, honestly, it worked really well for Westerns. Because you'd have this blue sky and you'd have this like prairie in the background. And then you'd have the green grass that was right where you did. So if the camera's at the exact right spot, it was perfect. You know what I... (laughs) <laughs> Talking about the color TV, because we didn't get one until the early wow. 70s. Yeah. I neither. remember watching them land on the moon in black and white on this little, you know, remember when TVs were like furniture? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and this little screen and this big cabinet. And um, I was watching a, a thing on uh, Walt Disney, and they said he filmed all those wonderful world of color, wonderful world of Disney shows in color, even though they were right. in black and white on the televisions, because he knew someday that, they were going to be in color on TV and they would have a longer life. Yeah. And I was like, uh, that's some forward thinking. Yeah, he was a clever guy. You know, in terms of that, you know, and uh, like that. So, Well, this is the guy who froze himself underneath Disneyland, according to apocryphal stories, right? So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's been pretty well... Uh, debunked? Debunked. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, but just interesting. We start talking about those early days of TV and, and unfortunately, the decline of old time radio at that time yes you know it's coming back now though it's coming back big sure is <laughs> yep I, you know i was just looking on twitter there's a ton of old time radio fans on twitter as well like people who run their own old time radio shows so i think even beyond what we've tried to bring it back there are more people who have moved out from listening through the modern audio drama and just bumped into some of this great old time radio and are looking back and listening to that, and thank goodness for that. I, I agree. Well, we should we should call ourselves the OTR Shield Wall, like uh, the Robert E. Howard <laughs> fans that kept his legacy alive until people finally uh, took well, it over. Well, it well over do you think day. that people are so many people now are making great audio drama, and yes. I think it's just a natural thing, like you said, to say, well, where'd this all come from? And and start to look back and find shows in there. I, I usually go to Internet Archive, and you, know, you can find so much stuff there. Oh, yeah. And just listen to it for free. And just if you don't like it, you can just not listen to it again. But there's so much there. And it, there's, it was like Gunsmoke when, when I hadn't really listened to Gunsmoke maybe ever until, you know, a couple of years ago. And I just fell I, in love with it. 
and I've listened to like 80 or 90 shows of it. I love it more than the television show. I think the radio version oh, me too. is oh, yeah. me too. much better uh, than the television show. And I like the television show a lot. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I never really bought Jim Arnaz, as, or whatever his name was, as Matt Dillon. I didn't yeah. care for him. But Robert Conrad, oh my God. So we're going to need to do a gun smoke coming up. We've talked about it a lot, but I don't think we've ever actually done one. We are going to need to do a gun smoke. And I, yes, and I have just the one to do. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> so, so that'll be on the docket coming up in the months ahead. Right. Awesome. Perfect. Well, let's round this up, partners, and we'll oh, nice. <laughs> move on to next month. Hopefully, we'll have uh, Mr. Keene, Tracer of... Lost Person. Tracer of Lost Persons. Lost Persons. That's right. And then maybe the month after that, Gunsmoke. And then we're into Sonic Parlor, and we're going to have some guests over. Yes. By the way, I asked Mr. John Bell. I asked Mr. John Yay! Bell to come in as a guest. Right on. So he said, I got a pick. He's hilarious. <laughs> he, goes, yeah. he said, I got a pick. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to think about it and he'll get back to us as Perfect. well. And Lisa Michaud, she'll be doing it as well. I forget, we have a couple of others that we have lined up as yep. well that I can't remember. We'll probably yep. ask Pete to come back. What the heck, right? We, uh, we're, we're hoping to get Greg Taylor on the show. He's, uh, he seems uh, positive, so. Yes. Oh, I'd love to have Greg yeah, Taylor. Greg will be fun, too. Yeah. He's always a very knowledgeable person, as you can imagine. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming, Jeff. You're welcome. It was fun. Say good night. And Lothar, have a great day. Thank you, and you too. And thanks again for uh, bringing Johnny Dollar. That was awesome. Yes, it was. Thanks, brothers. We'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. All righty. See y'all later. Bye. Hear y'all later. <laughs> This has been an Electric Vicuna production. The traffic! Lose your cares in the luxury of a warm audio drama. AD softens the calluses on your soul, leaving you feeling silky smooth as it lifts your spirits. The soft, luxurious, and fragrantly sonic world of audio drama. It's like no other aural experience. Audio drama. I love it. Pamper your soul with an audio drama. Nurture yourself in narrative. AD. Now with dynamic panning crystals. Available on the Mutual Audio Network or wherever oral narratives are sold. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.